Would you pray with me? Father God, we gather before you this morning to express our adoration. You are so worthy of praise that if we did not cry out, the very rocks you created would cry out in praise. By the very fact that you are the creator and we are your creation, we are given understanding of our purpose, and that is to give you glory, the glory that your perfect nature deserves. You, God, alone are the creator, the provider, the lawgiver, the savior, the judge, and the king of the universe. Any authority on earth, in government, in the home, or in the church receives that authority only from you and endures in that authority only in so much as it is submitted to your ultimate kingship. Knowing this, we confess that we spend most of our days dismissing this fact. We find that we gloss over the truth that is right in front of us so that we can pretend we are self-made providers, that we are the ones that determine order and good and evil. We justify ourselves in our sin and self-righteousness and we pretend to believe the lie that we can be the kings and queens of our own kingdoms. Father, forgive us. Even as we gather this morning, forgive us for our apathy or our laziness, our complaining. Forgive us for coming to church with wrong motivations or feelings of obligation rather than joyous celebration and thanksgiving. We desire that beginning right now and as we hear your word that you would break our hearts and rebuild them to image you, to be led by your spirit, and to be overcome with the joy of our salvation. Please bring to our understanding those places where we have been hard-hearted this week against your spirit and the reminder of your word that that's the spirit brings. Please forgive us where we have acted in immaturity or impurity. Forgive us where we have held on to bitterness or anger. Forgive us for where we have imaged Adam and Eve rather than Christ. Please forgive us of our unwillingness to take part in your mission of proclaiming the gospel and reconciling the nations to you because it is inconvenient. Please forgive us of our unwillingness to actively participate in the sanctification you have brought us in our relationships or conflict because it is hard or requires your humbling of our stiff-necked hearts. And please forgive us where we have turned your good order upside down in order to place ourselves as the ultimate authority. At the same time we ask for your forgiveness, we give you thanks that you have told us that if we are faithful to repent and confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive us of those sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we give you praise for your graciousness. We also thank you for this last weekend and the ability to affirm six new members into this local body. Thank you for the many visitors that came on Sunday last week and are here again today. And for the heartfelt hospitality they were shown by the members of this church as those members volunteered and worshiped. We pray that you would draw those who are yours to this body or another gospel-centered church. We also give you thanks and pray for our brothers and sisters at other churches, at Trinity Church in Portland with Pastor Thomas Terry and their elders. We pray that they would stay firmly planted in the truth of your word. We give thanks and pray for First Baptist Church here in Salem and Pastor Mark Hankey and their leadership. We pray that they would continue serving Salem in endurance as they have done so faithfully for so many years. We pray for our leaders at both the local and national level. We pray that you would intercede and bring them wisdom, your wisdom, and draw them to yourself. We pray that you would break through the competing ideologies that seek to dethrone you and then give them your truth. We pray for our leaders as they make decisions about working within the wildfires that are scorching the West. We ask for protection for the many firefighters that are in their midst, and if possible, for rain to assist their fight. 
We pray that these fires would humble us and bring us to our knees in prayer, recognizing you are the provider. And finally, Lord, we pray for our brother, elder, and pastor, Ryan, as he steps into your pulpit and unpacks the word that you gave to Paul to give to Timothy to give to the church. Please give him your words, and please open our hearts to hear it, open our hearts to understand that you are a God who works in and through your church in the life of the saints whom you have called by your sovereign grace. By your spirit, please let our hearts be open to receiving your word. In Jesus' precious name, we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat and open in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's where our text is today, 1 Timothy chapter 3. In the spring of 2001, the Western Baptist College baseball team set out on their first road trip of the season. They had high hopes that it would be a successful season, that God would answer their prayers and their obedient Bible reading, and that they would win some baseball games. I was a freshman, uh, third-string catcher, fifth-string outfielder, a glorified ball boy, maybe just a regular ball boy. I was in the second of three vans heading up I-5 for what should have been a six-hour trip to Vancouver, Canada. We got separated from the first van somehow, but uh, we didn't have phones, we didn't have a map, but we did have a senior pitcher named Jeff, and he had confidence that he knew how to get there. We decided to let Jeff guide our van, and the third van decided to follow us. What should have been a six-hour trip allowing us time to eat lunch and some batting practice before the game, turned into a nine-hour trip that allowed us to just get our cleats on in time for the first pitch. We got demolished in game one, and in, but in game two, we managed to take a lead into the end of the game. In comes Jeff to seal the win, and he blew the lead, and we lost the game. Afterwards, our second baseman and our right fielder had to be separated. They were shoving. They, they were going to start a fight. These professing Christians and baseball players who were willing to profess they were Christians for the sake of a baseball scholarship were fighting. Complete disarray. All of it because we chose to follow the wrong leader. Like that baseball team, reality is heading towards a destination. The church is heading towards a destination. And like that baseball team, we have hopes for how it's going to work out. It matters who you follow. I'm worried for the sake of the gospel and for the good of souls that many Christians are ignoring biblical instruction on church leadership. And the stakes are much greater than um, just performance in a baseball game. But even if you're not going to become an elder, our text today has a lot to say to you for the sake of the gospel and the good of your soul. The title of the sermon for today is The Noble Task and Character of the Overseer. So far in 1 Timothy, Paul's been pointing out problems in the Ephesian church. Think back to chapter 1. Paul hammers home the point that false teachers were asserting authority over the gospel that the apostles were teaching. By distorting the gospel, they were distorting God's good order. He reminds Timothy of the true gospel, the trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In chapter 2, 
we see the, the Ephesian church is disordered in its mission. Paul urges for prayer, that earthly authorities would allow the church to live peaceful, godly lives so that the church would continue to preach the gospel that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for humanity. Earthly authorities submitted to God's authority make for a well-ordered world. In that well-ordered world, the gospel is proclaimed and God's authority is honored. We saw last week at the end of chapter 2 that Paul's desire is again for more prayer and for the church to follow God's created order of responsibility and authority. Roles given by God are what determines order. And God's order does not undermine value. Families and churches submitted to God's authority make for a well-ordered family and church. And God's authority is honored in it all. We can see how Paul's description of the problem goes from disordered false teachers who don't honor the king of the ages, the immortal, invisible, and only God, to the prayer for civil governments, to allow the church to preach the gospel. And then he drills down further. He starts at the cosmic, the honor of God that's being offended, and he moves down to the specific church. So today, we look at how the church, the household of God, honors God's authority and how it orders itself. Paul's solution for disordered authority is to put the authority back in order and submitted to God. This isn't just his solution for the Ephesian church. He gives the same instructions in Titus to the church in Crete, and Peter gives the same instructions to the churches in Asia Minor. These letters were circulated, and churches all over the Roman world used them to order their churches according to the inspired instructions. So we would do well to follow these instructions. We'll look at the instructions here. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. This is our first point. The noble task of the overseer. Paul gives Timothy a trustworthy statement. By emphasizing the statement and calling it trustworthy, he's causing the reader to highlight it, underline it, star it, and encourage the church to repeat it amongst themselves. The task of an overseer is a noble task. Paul doesn't say it's fun. He doesn't say it's comfortable. He doesn't say that it's powerful. But when an overseer is submitted to God and laboring for the sake of the church, it, Paul says it's a noble task. God is a God of order. And the Apostle Paul expects the order to be worked out through leaders here called overseers. They're laboring at the noble task of caring for God's people. We, we see the word office here. It has a very simple definition. It describes a position of particular responsibility or authority. This word here is one that we don't use very often, though, overseer. You may have noticed over the last four months or so that we've started using the word pastor and elder interchangeably. This is because the New Testament does the same thing. Look on the screen with me. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Peter says, So I exhort the elders, and that's a Greek word I'm not going to try to pronounce, among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. 
as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Then he asks them to do something. He asks them to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight. That Greek word is the one that we have in our text today. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So here we have three different Greek words that are used interchangeably to describe the person and action of the overseer of a church. Paul does the same thing in another passage, and so we're going to follow this example and use these terms interchangeably. Our text today uses overseer, so that's primarily what I'll use, but remember that these terms are synonymous. This observation is about more than just naming conventions, though. This has an impact on how churches are ordered. This fact that there is no distinction between the pastor and the elder and the overseer reveals to us that responsibility and authority for members in the local church reside in the overseers of the local church. It's not in a centralized governing body out there. It's not an internal hierarchy. The biblical model is men who meet biblical qualifications caring for the people of the church. And the people of the church can trust that they can follow these overseers because the fruit of their submission to God is evident in their lives. With biblically faithful leadership like that, there's no need for additional layers of judges or rulers inside or outside of the church. These leaders can be followed, not because of their own merit, but because they follow God so closely. Notice that part of the trustworthy saying is for someone to aspire to the office of overseer. If this office was described as a position of power, then aspiring to it would bring suspicion. We live in a world where suspicious, a suspicious look is cast on anyone who aspires to a leadership position. They think that person is seeking to further their own purposes, gather power, or build a kingdom for themselves through that aspiration. They think that authority is the problem. The world makes itself an authority by doing away with authority. That's the world's way of authority. But the point of this particular office is really about imitating Christ in care for the household of God. The point is to gladly bear the weight of responsibility. At the core of this idea is headship. If you missed last week's sermon on headship, our passage from uh, Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, please go back and listen to it. The same threads of responsibility and authority are woven through that text and today's. And Paul's not making this idea up of having trustworthy men responsible for a group of people. This has a long history in ancient societies of a city's leaders gathering at the gates of that city, making themselves available to judge in matters of conflict, to be witnesses of legal transactions, to welcome visitors, and to guard the city against threats. Maybe not in a military way, but certainly in terms of what was being taught in the public forum. Look on the screen at Deuteronomy 16, 18. The people of God are heading into the promised land and God instructs them, 
you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. As Israel is going into the promised land, God instructs them to put in place what are essentially overseers. And they would sit at the city gates and handle the matters of the city. Maybe you remember the story of Ruth and Boaz, where to become the kinsman redeemer for Ruth, Boaz had to go to the elders at the city gate and have them witness the redemption process. This is the same activity that Paul is describing as the noble task of the overseer. But rather than the order of a well-run city, he has something else in mind. Turn with me. Let's go back to our New Testament reading for the day, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll read verses 11 through 16. Speaking of Jesus, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We see in this passage in Ephesians that Jesus, for the sake of caring for his people, gave the gifts of several different offices to his church, each with its own particular responsibility and authority. The offices of the apostles and the prophets established doctrine and defined the true gospel of Christ, which serves as the foundation of the church. These offices have been fulfilled. The word of God is secured, the canon of scripture is whole, so the tasks of the apostle and prophet are complete. The evangelist, the next office we see, plays a role that is transitory in the life of the believer. Whether it's as a missionary here or abroad, the evangelist delivers the gospel message to the lost and then del delivers the new believers to the local church. The converted are not left to languish on their own. They are not left to any YouTube channel or podcast. Instead, the people of God are placed in the local church where the shepherds and teachers then have the responsibility to care for them. Shepherds and teachers care for the saints to equip them for the work of ministry, this is straight out of the text, to build up the body of Christ, to attain unity of faith, knowledge of the Son of God, maturity, so that they're not tossed about by worldly doctrines, but growing up into the head of the body, Jesus Christ. The headship of the overseer in all of its activity and labor has one goal. That's to bring the local church under the headship of Jesus Christ. If that's not a noble task, then I don't know what is. 
With this noble task of responsibility, overseers are also given authority in God's local church. Authority and responsibility are always granted in concert with each other. I'll say it again. Authority and responsibility are always granted in concert with each other. Imagine a school teacher charged with the responsibility to train students in a subject or a skill, but without the authority to correct them. Responsibility without authority is toothless. If a person responsible for teaching and instruction is not also granted the authority to correct, they're toothless and cannot exercise proper care. And authority without responsibility is tyranny. If someone has authority without the responsibility to care or responsibility that they will be held accountable for, then they turn into tyrants. This is summed up really well in a verse in Hebrews. I want you to look at it. Look for the granting of authority and the granting of responsibility. Hebrews 13, 17 on the screen. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Did you catch it? Obey your leaders and submit to them. That's the authority. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's the responsibility. This verse shows how authority and responsibility go hand in hand in the life of the believer. The command to listen and follow the instruction and correction of your leaders is God's ordained authority granted to the leaders. Giving account for how we keep watch is the responsibility that we carry. We will stand before God on the last day and give an account for the instruction and correction that we give. If we stray from faithfulness to God's word, if correction is improperly applied, God will hold us to account for that. There's a reciprocity here honoring the roles or the offices that we all have in the church. And when we do that, the church is filled with life-giving relationships. It becomes a place where we all grow in our Christ-likeness and we grow together as the people of God. We're using the terms responsibility and authority a lot and let's be really clear about a few things. This is gonna be review for many of you, but this verse begs two questions. Which souls will the overseer give an account for? The overseer practices, remember, particular responsibility and particular authority over a particular people. We define that particular people through membership. The elders at Mission Fellowship know who their flock is. The who of our responsibility and authority is contained in the pages of this member directory, 138 people. So we are very clear on who we will give an account for. The second question to ask this verse is how do you know which leaders to obey and submit to? We answer the question the same way, through covenant membership. By marking yourself as a member of this particular gathering of believers, you know which leaders to follow. And I'm thankful for so many of you 
who are following the instruction and correction brought to you by the elders of this church. We've seen your relationships flourish as you've engaged in challenging conversations that your pastors have directed you to. We've seen your love for God grow as you've listened to instruction on regular prayer and Bible study. We've seen you set aside worldly habits and submit yourself to the Bible's teaching. This is what Hebrews 13, 17 is talking about when it says, let us keep watch over your souls with joy. When we hear of this congregation honoring their Lord and Savior, we're able to do this noble task with joy. You are following a good path. Now let me point out a dangerous path. That path disconnects responsibility and authority from your life. God always grants them in concert, so we would do well to keep them together. When your pastors have responsibility for you, but you give authority in your life to someone else, you're on dangerous ground. That pastor, thousands of miles away, may be a great communicator or a great scholar and may say a ton of true things, but he's not your pastor. That author may have sold a lot of books and may say a ton of true things, but they are not your pastor. I'm not discouraging reading books or listening to podcasts or sermons. I do that. But be careful. It might seem like you're submitting to their authority, but at the root of it, you're making yourself the authority to choose who to follow. Look at what Paul says in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 3. based on your own desires, looking for someone who will tell you what you want to hear. But this isn't, this isn't me telling you to let me or the other elders tell you who to listen to based on our own authority. We're telling you to let God's word describe to you who faithful overseers are. You should choose to follow leaders based on God's authority over your life and keep the responsibility for the care of your soul joined together with authority to hear correction for the sake of your soul. It's part of God's good order for a church to be led by elders who lead in submission to God's authority. It's important to God that you follow. It's also important to God who you follow. So we continue along in Paul's argument and his instructions on ordering a healthy church into a description of the character of the overseer of the church. Come back to 1 Timothy 3, if you aren't there already, and let's read verses 2 through 7. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So here we have our second point from the text. That is, the godly character of the church overseer. The overwhelming emphasis of our text today is that the men who lead the church in submission to God's authority are to have godly character. This is not to the exclusion of giftedness, but absent these character qualities, even the most gifted communicators, even the most brilliant minds are precluded from the office of overseer in the church. This tells us a lot about who God wants caring for his people. He wants men whose lives show the power of the gospel, not just their words. The qualities listed here in verses 2 through 7 are laid out for an overseer slash elder slash pastor in the local church. And we'll consider them in that way. But notice that these qualities to one degree or another, listed here are simply the marks of a mature believer. Someone who is a new creation, someone who's been truly impacted by their need for a savior. And they are a reflection of the mercy that God has shown to them in Jesus Christ. So I want you to observe as we go through these that the qualities are not reserved for a next level or professional Christian, as if that's a thing. But instead, these qualities should be evident and growing in every believer's life in one way or another. A tree is known by its fruit, whether it is in leadership or not. Now, anytime we come to a list in the Bible, there's a temptation to make a word cloud out of it. You know what I'm talking about? We uh, take the qualities uh, that we want to have or that we, we think we have in spades and they're in size 72 bold font and then the ones that we struggle with are down in the corner in size six font. And we invert it when we see a list of unrighteousness. The sins that we struggle with are down there in the size six font, and other people's are in the bold size 72. So I know this is a long list, but don't fall to that temptation while you listen. Each of these traits should be present and growing in the life of an overseer. At the beginning of our elder meetings here, before anyone else is in the room, we open to 1 Timothy 3 and we examine ourselves, looking for where we are weakest, and we pray for each other. The command of Scripture is that we are to be above reproach in these qualities. It's not a skill set to acquire, and then you're just grandfathered. This is something to continue to grow in. We see first that the overseer must be above reproach. Read this as a header over the rest of the qualities. They must be above reproach in faithfulness to their wife. They must be above reproach in their sober-mindedness, and so on. To be above reproach means they are a model of godliness. To be above reproach in the following qualities means the people of the church can have confidence that when they imitate their leaders, they pick the right person to follow. To be above reproach means the overseer can love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith 
like Paul describes earlier in the letter. Next, the overseer must be the husband of one wife. So just don't be married to more than one woman and you're good. Got it. <laughs> False. More literally translated, this is a man of one woman. This phrase describes the marital devotion and single-mindedness of a committed husband. Complete faithfulness of body, mind, and heart is expected of the man who would represent and teach about Christ's love for his church. Christ has one bride, and he gave everything for her. So all of Christ's disciples imitate him in their marital devotion, and the overseer must be above reproach in that imitation. To be a faithful overseer, he must be sober-minded. This quality could also be rendered as one who always has restraint. He doesn't allow circumstances to cause his thoughts or emotions to run away. In order to rightly instruct and correct, the overseer cannot be prone to letting the world around him cause him to run off. The weight of God's word and the responsibility to care for souls keeps him grounded in reality, in the moment, with whoever's there with him. Next, the faithful overseer is self-controlled. This is closely connected to sober-minded. He has right thoughts about what one should do, and those thoughts guide all of his actions. Appetites of all varieties are placed in check. I mean all varieties, whether food and drink, sexual appetite, the desire to be heard, the ability to control not just what they say, but how they say it. This is the type of man who is able to call others to the same type of self-control. The next qualification for the overseer in God's church is respectable. Now, this isn't talking about respect in the way that it's commonly used today. We certainly should respect people's rights, treat them civilly with human dignity. But that doesn't mean that everyone behaves respectably. It takes time to accumulate enough experience with a person to determine if they are worthy of respect. Christians should respect people who follow Christ's teaching revealed to us in Scripture. Not every person or opinion is automatically worthy of respect. Look up on the screen for me. We'll read Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. Jesus gives a warning. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This is the type of examination that Jesus calls when you're deciding who you're going to follow. What is the fruit of their lives? Question and answer time. Tune in. Do you want to eat the fruit from a bad tree? No. Of course not. In the same way, the fruit of a teacher's life will tell you whether they are worthy of respect and listening to their teaching and instruction. The next quality Paul gives us 
to look for in a person to follow is that they are hospitable. Jesus commanded us to make disciples, and that is a practice that requires us to be involved in each other's lives. An overseer shows himself to be all of these qualities because you're invited not only into his home, but into his life. You know what a well-ordered household looks like because you've seen the way he interacts with his kids and his wife. Or you know he's self-controlled because he tells you how he organizes his life so that godly thinking will lead to godly living. Think back to the idea of the elders at the gates. Part of their responsibility was to greet people who visited the city, to make sure they felt welcomed, but also to guard the people of the city from anyone who would harm them. There in Matthew 7, Jesus describes those false prophets as ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. When an overseer is hospitable, they are more aware of who is in the midst of their flock and watching out for any who might be wolves. Next in the list is that he's able to teach. To be a disciple is to be a learner. Part of the office of congregant is to receive teaching, and part of the office of overseer is to teach. Remember Jesus, post-resurrection, at the end of John's gospel, asking Peter, do you love me? When Peter said yes, Jesus said, feed my sheep. This is the work of teaching, feeding God's people with the words of life. To teach does not necessarily mean to preach, but it means to be able to handle scripture well in such a way that the overseer is able to apply it to all of life. The gospel has implications for all of life. So being able to apply it to all of life means you have to reason from scripture, the only source of our authority and power. Excuse me, authority of the overseer. If this is the who of our responsibility, then this is the what of our responsibility. Next, the overseer must not be a drunkard. The Bible has many solemn warnings about the damaging effects of alcohol. Alcohol is a depressant and impairs our judgment. When abused, it ruins lives. It's not something to mess with, especially if you are called upon to be a teacher or leader of any kind. Paul stops short of prohibiting here, but make no mistake, a person controlled by alcohol will be destroyed by it. And for an overseer, the risks are even greater. They're delivering the word of God to the people of God, so their judgment must be controlled by the spirit of God. The next two qualifications can be considered together. Not violent, but gentle, and not quarrelsome. In these qualities, the overseer must be the image of Christ. In Matthew, speaking of Jesus, it says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Gentleness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And when God describes his own character, we hear first of his mercy, grace, and patience. So overseers are given a triune example of the God that they are to follow. An overseer must understand, first and foremost, that the people he is caring for are not his people. They, you, are God's blood-bought people. We will answer to him if we lack gentleness or if we spend our time stirring up quarrels. Even when correcting someone, 
Gentleness shows that there is room for repentance. Next, the overseer in the household of God must not be a lover of money. Later in this letter to Timothy, Paul will point out that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Jesus describes money as a master that is opposed to God. He says you can't be mastered by money and serve God. To love money causes us to store up riches here in this life. But the overseer should be an example of someone who is so infatuated with the coming kingdom of God that the riches of this kingdom of earth are dismissed. And we'll see later on in chapter 5 that Paul expects pastors to be paid for their services. And we'll talk more about that then. But when the overseer is not a lover of money, then they are able to have a clear conscience when they exhort their people to give cheerfully and generously as the New Testament commands. Next, rather than in single words or phrases, Paul describes in more detail what the church should look like or should look for in an overseer. He must manage his own household well. The household is the proving ground for a potential overseer. This is the place where he shows that he knows how to handle authority and responsibility well. Does his wife respect him? Does he train his children with a heavy hand, or does he show qualities of gentleness even while being firm? The husband and father should know well how to navigate between authority and submission. He should be fluent in it as he leads his family and submits to God and to his elders before becoming an elder himself. The submission doesn't stop when you become an overseer. We're, in, we're constantly in conversation with one another, coming to understand what each other says and their perspective because we're not doing this alone. This is also a grace for him and his family. If the family needs the full attention and energy of the father, then it's not right for him to leave them to care for the church. It's a challenging thing. I'm speaking now for this church and this group of elders. It's a really challenging one. Our wives and children do make sacrifices and they do it to show love to the church. We all do it because we love you. Not the unconditional positive regard kind of love, but the kind of love where we lay our lives down for you. Part of our job is to make sure that even while making sacrifices for the sake of the local church, our children know the loving, responsible authority of their fathers. I'm telling you, this isn't easy. But we're doing it for the sake of the gospel. We preach this gospel to our kids. We preach this gospel to you. We were all outside the family of God because of sin. We were born twisted into a twisted world that's rejected him. But the God of the universe, he doesn't overlook our sin, but in Jesus' death on the cross, God counts his death as ours. Do you see how Jesus took responsibility in his death? So don't be surprised to find out that he's the authority. When we give up our feudal grasp for authority in this world and acknowledge the reality of his headship, we're counted with Jesus in his death and even more in his resurrection. God is making a family. He's calling people to join his family, people who will live gladly under his headship. If you want to know more about what this means, I'd love to talk with you after the service. 
Jesus is the head of the church, but only those who submit to his responsibility and authority are part of it. The next qualification listed is that he's not a recent convert. This does not speak exclusively to age, but instead is about the quality of the faith that results from testing. A faith that has been tested will rest its confidence in God and not in itself. That type of faith will avoid the same pride and conceit that the devil fell into, which sent him into condemnation. The list of gifted young leaders who were given offices of authority before their faith was tested is long, and the damage done is great. Giftedness is alluring in the eyes of the world, but this text makes crystal clear that godliness must come first. There's a big difference between a leader who is submitted to God and a person who can accumulate followers. There's a big difference between a person who is a leader submitted to God and a person who can accumulate followers. We need to be tuned into the difference and we need to develop a taste for godly leadership. The final qualification is that he's well thought of by outsiders. The devil sets a snare for overseers and that is to disgrace the gospel to the world. So even the world needs to see that this person is above reproach. Think back through the study of the book of Daniel for a great biblical example of this. Even the kings of this world wanted Daniel around. He was above reproach. Now make no mistake, we will offend the world with the gospel. The gospel reveals that we have a deep-seated problem that we can't fix ourselves. But the way an overseer behaves regarding the qualities listed here should make the world want to know more about us and our church. This is a tough list, right? No one can be perfect in the face of this list. But the calling is to be above reproach in it. If the overseer takes one step off of this path, repentance should be immediate and thorough. This is a high calling, but this is a noble task. The other pastors here, we've talked about this even this week, letting the weight of these qualifications rest on our shoulders so we can understand how important they are. We understand we are on a short leash because the stakes are high for the sake of the gospel and the good of your souls. It matters who you follow. So let's apply this text to our lives in a few different ways. The first application question to ask yourself is, are you allowing the pastors and elders of your local church to be your shepherds? Maybe you're not part of this, maybe you're visiting, but it's important to God that you follow. When you have theological questions, family questions, when you need guidance, your pastors are here for that. We wanna hear your doubts. We wanna help bear your burdens. These character qualifications paint a portrait of the kind of person who can guide you through life, not resting on our own wisdom, but on the wisdom of God revealed in scripture. That's the noble task. Are you allowing the pastors and elders 
of your local church to be your shepherds. Next one. Are you praying for the pastors of your local church that they would be up to the noble task of the overseer? These qualities, for me at least, are not present in my natural state. These take daily reminders, effort, real work, to cut out my old heart and let God give me a new one. And the enemy is active. He would love to take this church down, starting by taking down its leadership. Your pastors need your prayer. I can't tell you how blessed I was at our member meeting last week when Carolina took the mic and reminded the church that we need, that the elders need prayer and we need support. I'm so thankful for that. This is a noble task, but it takes a toll on us and on our families. So we covet your prayers. Pray that God would protect our families and that they would know God's salvation and know his grace. Please pray for your pastors. Next application question for you. Are you praying for more pastors for your local church? In Matthew 9, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When you look around this church, when you look around the children's wing, I think you'll agree there is an abundant harvest. And we need more pastors. We need more men who are willing to aspire to the noble task of the office of overseer. So please pray for, join with your pastors. We're praying for this. Please pray with us for more pastors in our church. Next application question is, how is God growing these character qualities in you? And if applicable, is he growing these in you for the sake of taking on the noble task of overseer? Again, the qualities in the text today are not just for pastors. These are qualities that should be increasing in the lives of all believers. So take some time to examine yourself in light of them. Ask God to help you as you seek to grow in them. And if you do aspire to the office of overseer in the church, it's a noble thing. And I want you to know that growing into an overseer doesn't happen overnight. Are you willing to develop these qualities starting now? The first step of this is, are you willing to be examined against the standards of Scripture and find out where you, want, where you need to develop next? So how is God growing these character qualities in you? And is he growing them for the sake of taking on the noble task? It's a trustworthy statement. It's a noble task. And I'm truly thankful that I get to serve in this way with you. Your pastors are happy to lead you here in God's household. Amen.